1: We always want to assume that law and gospel are at odds with one another. But if you study God's Word, you begin to realize that they work hand in hand, as we will see today on Abounding Grace with Pastor Gary Wagner. The Ministry of Reformed Heritage Church in San Jose. This is Abounding Grace. Hi there, and welcome to our program. Our time together will return us to Galatians chapter 3. We're looking at verses 15 through 29 in a message simply entitled The Law and the Gospel. It is a look at how these two work in tandem and just exactly what God is doing when it comes to the law and the gospel. Get some clarification today on God's grace and how it reflects on the law. Here's Pastor Gary with today's broadcast of Abounding Grace. God gave us his
2: law in this covenant, not only to show us how we are to live after we submit our lives to Jesus, but he also has given us his law to drive us to Christ before we become Christians, to show us How good for nothing we truly are. And how deserving we are of God's condemnation. And that our only hope is to quit trying to earn salvation and cast ourselves on the mercy of God revealed in the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, let's look at our text. The third chapter of Galatians, verse 15 through 20. It's divided into two sections. Verses 15 through 22 is a contrast between law and promise. In verses 23 through 29, the contrast is between slavery and freedom. In verses 15 through 22, there are two sections to that. In verses 15 to 18, the point is that the law of God does not annul the promise of God. And in verses 19 through 22, the law of God highlights the promise of God and makes Christ indispensable. Now, let's look at these verses. Remember now, everything I have said so far, I have said just so we can understand these words. Brethren, I speak in terms of human relations. Or he is saying, I'm going to give you an everyday illustration says, even though it is only a man's covenant, yet when it is ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. Now, he's probably here talking about a will. And he says, once it is made, once it is ratified, you can't change it. No matter what happens after that, changes are not legal, that is, in the culture Of that time. It is inevitable and unalterable. And if that is the way human covenants are, how much more is it going to be true of any covenant God makes with us? God makes a covenant with us and he says, Your standing depends upon Christ through faith in him and not on anything you do. When God makes a plan and a statement like that, Then no matter what he says after that, no matter how it appears, nothing is going to change it. So whether you understand all this stuff about Moses and the sacrificial system and the case laws, etc. At least understand that the purpose was not to change the original plan. You believe in Jesus and God says, I'll give you life I'll give you the faith even to believe in Jesus. So not even your faith is meritorial. You don't have to do anything to earn it or deserve it. So beloved, quit trying. We just rest on Christ alone. And we will be His friends. No matter what we have done prior to that. Nothing in history can ever change it. Verse 16, now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one, and to your seed, that is Christ. In other words, he's saying, here is proof. In this original arrangement God has made with you, That man had to do, had nothing to do whatsoever to earn salvation. That is, God's promise of salvation was free and unconditional, in that there was absolutely nothing that man had to do to merit it. (coughs) No strings attached, no works to do, no laws to obey. No merit to establish. No conditions to fulfill. God simply said to Abraham, I will be your God and I will give you a seed through whom the nations will be blessed. He didn't say, I'll be your God if you deserve it. I'll give you a seed through whom all the nations will be blessed if you earn it. They were simply Unequivocal statements, promises from God without the least involvement of human merit. I will be your God. I will give you a seed through whom all the nations of the world will be blessed. No word of merit, no word of worth, no word of just deserts. It was a sheer, gracious, free, sovereign. Promise. And people have been trying to change it ever since. But it hasn't worked. God said to Abraham, I'm going to give you a seed. And then he makes a point that that seed is Christ preeminently and all of those who belong to him through faith. And he, Christ, is the one who accomplishes our salvation. And is the great display of God's grace and God's love for his people. Like Romans 5.8 says, God demonstrated his love toward us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That Christ is that promised seed. That promised descendant of Abraham. Who would bring salvation to his people, not because they deserve it. But in spite of the fact that they don't deserve it, it was a sheer promise. Beloved, with all our doctrines and all of our ethics and all of our Calvinism and all of our theonomy, don't clutter up or compromise or confuse this one simple fact. The gospel of salvation is a sheer promise from God. I promise you, I will forgive you of your sins because of Jesus. The moment you believe in me, and there's nothing else you have to do to earn it. And even the faith you express to receive it, I give you the ability to receive. That is the core of the gospel, a sheer promise. And that's the point that Paul has been making. Verse 17. What, am I saying? what I am saying is this, the law which came forth 130 years later does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. In other words, the law of God given to Moses wasn't given until four and a half centuries after the promise that God gave to Abraham. He didn't have all of these various laws, that is, Abraham, that that Moses gave to the people of God. And yet, what? He was accepted by God. It says the very fact that all of these laws didn't come until 430 years after the promise shows that nothing has changed about the basic nature of a man's relationship with God. You are not justified by yourself by your confidence, by your own ability to obey, uh, to make points with God. You are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone, and nothing, nothing, nothing else. And Paul goes on, verse 18, "...for if inheritance is based on law, it is no longer based on a promise. But God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise." In other words, he's saying if this inheritance of salvation and fellowship with God is based on a law principle, on obeying enough to earn it, then the whole idea of the freeness of the promise and grace falls to the ground. But we know that was the way Abraham was saved by grace through faith. Therefore, God never intended any change in this basic relationship. Then in verse 19, Paul asked this question Why the law then? In other words, if the law plays no part in the receiving of salvation, if the law of God is not something you have to obey in order to make points with God that you are saved by grace through faith in Christ, and there are no works to do, no merit to earn no laws to obey in order to receive salvation, then what is the purpose of the law? Why did God give us the law? Verse 19, it was added because of transgressions, having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed should come to whom the promise had been made. He says, here is one of the purposes, and the purposes of God's law of, of course, many. But the one he is pointing out is, in the scheme of grace, was that it was added because of transgressions. Let me read a couple of other places that make this same point. In Romans 5.20, it says this, And the law came in that transgression might increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Or Romans 3.20. By the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. Why? For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Romans 7, verse 7 through 14. Notice what it says about the law of God. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not come to know sin except through the law, for I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. And this command, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. For sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, is holy and righteous and good. Therefore, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? May it never be. Rather, it was sin. In order that it might be shown to be sin by affecting my death through that which is good, so that through the commandment sin might become utterly sinful. God gave His law to us, that through the law our sin might appear to be utterly sinful to us. In other words... The purpose of God's law in a covenant of grace is not to bestow salvation on us. This is not the function of God's law. The function of God's law is to convince people of their need of salvation. The law of God was never meant to give salvation. It was meant to convict us of our need for salvation. That we need to see how sinful and evil we are in the sight of God. So God gave us His law to break us, to expose sin in our lives, to show us that we have no reason for any arrogance or self-righteousness or self-love or our attitude of self-sufficiency. That when we compare ourselves to the commandments of God's law, and we realize how far short we fall. That any obedience we may had, may have had in relation to these laws is nothing. And so it breaks us and it beats us down. It brings us grief and hostility and abhorrence toward ourselves. That we could do such a thing and be such filthy creatures. In the sight of our almighty God. That is the purpose of God's law. It is not to save you. It is to show you how much you need to be saved. Listen to these words of Martin Luther. The first use of God's law is to bridle wickedness. Therefore God has ordained magistrates, parents, ministers, and all civil ordinances... That if they do no more, yet at least they may bind the devil's hands that he rage not in his bondslaves after his own lust. But Paul does not treat here the civil use of the law, for another use of the law is divine and spiritual, which is to increase transgressions, or at least our knowledge of transgressions. That is to say, to reveal unto man his sin, his his blindness, his misery, his iniquity, his ignorance, his hatred and contempt of God, death, hell, judgment, and the deserved wrath of God. But to the end that God might bridle and beat down this monster of self-righteousness, it behooved God to send some hercules who might set him set upon him with all force and courage to overthrow him and utterly destroy him that is Self-righteousness, as long as the opinion of self-righteousness, self-justification remains in a person, so long as there also remains in him incomprehensible pride, presumption, security in self, hatred of God, contempt for his grace and mercy, ignorance of the promise of Christ. The preaching of free remission of sins through Christ cannot enter into the heart of such a one, Neither can he feel any taste or savor thereof. For that hard wall of the opinion of righteousness resists it. This then is a great and terrible monster. And for the overthrowing of it, God has need of a mighty hammer. That is the law, which is in its proper office when it accuses accuses and reveals sin after the sort and says this to us. You have transgressed the commandments of God. And so it strikes terror into the conscience so that it feels God to be offended indeed and itself to be guilty of eternal death. Here the sinner feels the intolerable intolerable burden of the law and is quite beaten down. So that being in anguish and terror, he seeks death. The law is God's hammer, God's fire, God's mighty strong wind and that terrible earthquake rending the mountains and breaking the rocks, that is to say, breaking the pride and the obstinate hypocrites, End quote. The purpose of God's law is to warn us against obstinate disobedience to God's law and to show us how heinous. That is, it has absolutely no power to make a bad man good. It has no power to make a good man better. That power is reserved for the gospel alone, my friends. But the law of God does have a very important place in our lives. And it is neglected today. And as a result, there is a failure to really appreciate the gospel of Christ on all hands. And we are thus feeding pearls to swine. The Christian church in its evangelism and its, pres- its presentation of the gospel because of the failure of the church feeds pearls to swine. Who do not appreciate the value of the pearl. Because they have yet to see the stench and the filth of the pigsty. Are you listening? If you present the gospel to people too quickly, or you hear it too quickly yourself, without plowing up the conscience with the work of God's law, letting that law terrify you, and convict you, and bruise you, and beat you down, Showing you what a wretched sinner you are in the sight of God. And what a heinous thing it is to sin against Him. It is like casting pearls before swine. They don't want the pearl of the gospel. They don't recognize its value because you have yet to understand the stench and the filth of the pigsty. And the purpose of the law is to help people see how filthy the pigsty of their lives really is. The pigsty of their hearts and their minds and their imaginations and the thoughts that fill their inner lives. Do you see the filth of your sin? Or do you simply say, I just slipped up again. Has the law of God ever broken you down? Has the law of God bruised you? Has the law of God terrified you? Has the Spirit used the law in your life to bring you to a self-loathing, to grief, to deep sadness of heart and conviction of what a wretch I am? Why does the law of God do that to us? It is because God loves to see us squirm. God uses the law like that to shut us up to all other ways of being accepted with him, except the way of faith in Christ. The Bible says that all sinners are not only slaves to sin in the prison house of rebellion, unable to do anything about their situation because of the evil that dominates their whole inner life, but our text actually says that the law of God has shut us up, that the law of God is our jail keeper, that the purpose of the law of God in the life of the unbeliever is not only to correct him of his sin and to show him the danger and the wickedness of his particular situation apart from God, separated from him because of his beliefs. But the, God, the law of God is to help that sinner see that there's no other possible way of escape. He doesn't feel the conviction of his sin and say, Oh, I'm such a wretch. I I, I just have to try harder. I've got to make more sacrifices. I've got to be more diligent and I've got to be more faithful. No, that's not the purpose of the conviction of sin. The reason the law of God convicts the unbeliever and helps him to see this pigsty is not so he can say, I need to try harder, but so he can recognize there is no use in trying to save myself. It is absurd and impossible to even think of trying. The law is so, I recognize that my sin is so heinous, and I am so separated from God, so under his judgment, so lost in myself. And there is nothing I can do. There's no use in even trying to do anything. I'm corralled. I'm hind in, and my only way of escape is Jesus. So I quit trying to earn and merit anything. I quit trying to justify myself. I recognize that I am what God says I am, and I cast myself on the mercy of God, and I cry out to Jesus to have mercy on this sinner. That's the purpose of God's law. My friends, isn't it a wonderful thing? People hate God's law today, but where would we be without God's law? We would be in a pigsty for all eternity. It's God's law that helps you and I see our true condition as it commands us to do things. And you see, rather than following its commands, it stirs up more rebellion in the heart and it convicts you of your sins against him. And you recognize the more you try, the deeper in the filth you get so it shuts out all forms of self-justification and corrals you to the only person who can do you any good. Praise God for his law, beloved. Praise God for the way it breaks us and bruises us and batters us down and terrifies us and humbles us and imprisons us and drives us to the feet of Jesus. Amen.